We see millions of people not having access. We know that, yes, you could set up your own IRA, but people don't. And so, you know, how do we get over that behavioral issue, but still work with an employer-based system where we know people will save when they have access to payroll deduction. DC Pension Geeks brings you exclusive conversations with top retirement policymakers and regulators in and around Washington, DC, hosted by Brian Graff, an attorney, accountant, former Capitol Hill staffer, and CEO of the American Retirement Association. If you're looking for an insider's view of all the twists and turns that Washington takes on the road to ensuring a secure retirement for millions of Americans, you're in the right place. Welcome to DC Pension Geeks. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, the summer hiatus is over, and it's time to get back to DC Pension Geeks. And, and frankly, there's a, already a lot of uh, activity, fast and furious, in, in Washington, uh, your nation's capital, making uh, the world a better place, or trying to, one day at a time. Sometimes they do a better job on certain days than others, as we all know. So um, I'm very glad to have uh, someone I've known for a long time, John Scott, uh, who is with Pew Charitable Trusts. And John has been um, involved in retirement policy for just a little bit. Um, in fact, uh, I'd say uh, John is truly a, a DC pension geek, and that is not, that is, I can assure you, John is an absolute compliment. Um, so we like to talk a little bit, just, you know, so folks out there listening can kind of get to know who they're uh, listening to. Um, how did you end up focusing on retirement policy? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I'll try and give you the the 60-second version, but it started with a, a class in law school. It's the first ever class at my law school on uh, employee benefits. And I, oh, wow. I, I thought it was fascinating. And it was really, I love the idea of working with a very complex area of the law uh, and trying to solve problems for clients. And that sort of got me involved um, first in a legal career, then out in industry doing pension compliance work for the most part, but also got to do a little bit of pension consulting uh, on the side. And then I had a bit of a career shift. I had an opportunity to come to D.C. to work for what is now the American Benefits Council and uh, was there for a few years, really enjoyed sort of being on the inside. You know, talk about being a D.C. pension geek. You know, when you're out working with clients out across the country, then you're in D.C. and you're seeing how problems crop up and how they get solved um, and having the conversations with the treasury and labor and, and the Hill. Um, it was just fascinating. And I really fell in love with that aspect of the work. But I really feel blessed having worked in industry and then working in, in the policy field and then took a bit of a detour and went back and got a graduate degree and did a little teaching and then ended up at, at Pew. So Pew is a, you know, I'm, very large organization in terms of its its footprint, in terms of um, its work in various policy arenas, a very well respected uh, foundation uh, trust uh, that uh, has managed, I think, for the most part, to maintain its status as truly nonpartisan in a in an, an era when that's increasingly very difficult to do. Um, what's, what's 
driven Pew's interest in retirement savings generally? Yeah, Pew is, Pew is a really interesting organization. And I should say Pew or people have probably heard of Pew, the Pew Research Center, which is our sibling organization that does a lot of public opinion polling. Pew Charitable Trust, which is where I work. We focus on policy research and trying to affect policy change based on that research. And and it's really a great place to work. We are self-funded. We have our own endowment, which gives us some independence to choose topics um, and then pursue um, policy change in a way that we think is best. And it's true, as you mentioned, that we are nonpartisan and we really strive to be, you know, approach both sides of the aisle and try to create solutions that are long lasting, that aren't tied with one particular party or the other, but really try and achieve consensus. And, and I think retirement policy, as you know, Brian, has always been very bipartisan or nonpartisan, whatever phrase you want to use, but it really has not been a political football over the decades that you and I have been in this field. And Pew has recognized the problem, which we all recognize that not enough people have access to a retirement plan through their job. Um, even if they do, they're not saving it enough. And so the project at Pew started nine years ago, which is scary for me to think about. I've been there nine years. But you know, the idea is to first to really develop a lot of evidence around, you know, what do we know about the lack of access to retirement plans um, in the workplace? What are the barriers? And um, uh, what are the barriers? And you know, what are the opportunities for change? And so I, I think Pew really likes to invest uh, in a particular problem, really sort of, you know, put some resources into it and make some progress. And then eventually we'll hand it over to other organizations. So Pew spent a lot, your focus, a part of a part of your focus. And, and I think certainly it seems to be uh, on the retirement policy front, a focus for Pew is the state-based auto IRA programs. Um, and you all have spent, you know, a great deal of energy over the years trying to promote these programs. What, why, what was about those programs that sort of you all decided that this is a great way to address the systemic coverage gap, which I, I guess the conclusion was people aren't saving, a lot of people aren't saving, but the, the principal reason they're not saving is they don't have access to a workplace savings program. Yeah, I, I think that's it. I mean, there, there are a number of solutions, both in the private sector, as I'm sure you're familiar with, your listeners are familiar with, but as well as public policy solutions to various aspects of the retirement crisis or the retirement problem. Um, I think for us, it was really about how do we get to scale with getting people into the saving system? And that was really the, the crux of the issues. We see millions of people not having access. We know that, yes, you could set up your own IRA, but people don't. And so, you know, how do we get over that behavioral issue, but still work with you know, an employer-based system where we know people will save when they have access to payroll deduction and, and not make this burdensome for employers um, because they are sort of the linchpin of this issue. And so thinking about, we want to expand coverage at scale but with those other parameters of, you know, let's work with employers, uh, but leverage payroll systems, that sort of guided us to the state uh, programs that, you know, were, were very new when I started working at Pew. Uh, and we felt that there was an opportunity here to... And really, it was like basically just Oregon and California was sort of 
Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and and so sort of two opportunities there that, you know, hey, this is something that we could try at the state level. And Pew is very much about let's let's try and affect some change at the state level and see how it works. And does it work? And is this something then we could scale up to more states or even a federal solution? So there's a good opportunity to see, yes, Oregon started in 2017 and followed by uh, other states. You know, we had that prior research, but we could also test what Oregon was doing, what the other states were doing, and how it was working out for them. We could actually see, you know, is this playing out in a way that's positive for both, for all stakeholders, employers, workers, taxpayers, and the private retirement system? So let's talk about how, you know, I know you guys have done quite a bit of research in terms of how the programs that have been in effect for a few years are performing in terms of their impact. Uh, you know, what can you share? Yeah, I, I think just uh, we can dive into a couple of these, uh, but just as a higher level sort of overview, sure. we've done surveys of workers. We just came out with some research from uh, workers in Illinois, who both who are participating in the Illinois program and who have opted out. And that'll be an ongoing line of research. But one of the things, interesting things we found there among many was that people felt more financially secure by virtue of their participation in the Illinois program. So these are low to moderate income workers, uh, and they've never, many of them never saved before in a retirement plan. This program made them feel a little bit more secure. Um, we recently came out recently by earlier this year with research on the fiscal impact when uh, people don't save for retirement. And we, you know, the top line number there is $1.3 trillion dollars. That's the cost to the states and the federal government when people don't have enough resources for retirement. So, you know, not that the state programs are going to solve that, but we went from from the very kind of micro, yes, to the uh, to the macro, the mega macro. You know, yeah. Can you just unpack what that macro number means? You know, I, I know what you're sure. talking about, but I don't think the listeners will. What is that one point three trillion dollars? What is that? What's that all about? Yeah. So when, you know, the basic idea is that when you don't save enough for retirement, you're going to fall short in retirement. You're, you're not going to have enough to live on. And that likely means you're going to have a decrease in your standard of living. Some people can adjust to that and other people can't. They're going to have to make up for that lack of income in retirement through other means. And one of those other means will be social assistance programs, chiefly Medicaid. Um, but there are a host of other social assistance programs, both at the state and the federal level. And so that's what that $1.3 trillion number is quantifying is what's the expected cost in social assistance when people are not prepared for retirement. So that's what we're getting at. It's a big number. It's a big number. Even in Washington speak, it's a big number. Um, it's a big number, yes. So how uh, you've also got some data that shows how, um, what are the number of people saving, for example, versus opting out in the states that have these programs? Um, are they saving at the auto enroll rate, which is typically 3%, or are they saving more? Are they saving less? And then, um, you know, what's, what's the spillover effect in terms of not just employers participating in these programs, but also employers deciding to uh, instead create a employer sponsor plan? Yeah. So in terms of the numbers we're seeing at the state level from the, the participants, 
Um, it depends on the state. Obviously, the state rules matter, but you're seeing anywhere from $100 to $200 a month, uh, depending on the state. Um, generally, it's about 5% of pay, but it's creeping up in some states that have auto escalation. Mm-hmm. So in Oregon, for example, Oregon's been uh, in existence since 2017. And so you have a number of participants there now that are had their contributions auto-escalated over time. And I think they're closer to 6% of pay and we're still as, seeing, as an average. And you're still not seeing any, you know, a, a huge bump up in opt-out rates. The auto-escalation seems to No, it's, it's about two-thirds of participating, you know, roughly about 65 to 70% are participating, which is when you look at the numbers on the private sector side uh, with some very small plans, and these are smaller employers yeah. by, by and large, it's not that dissimilar from what no, you're seeing. No, not at all. I think you're really talking about 66-ish percent versus right. 71, 72 percent. Right. So, you know, we're seeing good participation, good savings amounts. Um, people tend to stick at the defaults, no surprise there, both in terms of the contributions and the investments. Uh, so it's it's a it seems to be working. There are withdrawals from the program. I think that's what you would expect uh, from uh, from retirement participants who they see an account balance, you know, maybe they get a statement once a year and they see a couple thousand dollars. But by and large, people are sticking with the program. In fact, one little data point real quickly, when the pandemic hit the state of Oregon in March of 2020, and the state shut down, many workers were furloughed, we saw a big spike in withdrawals from the program. But in April, presumably once the federal relief money started to flow, those withdrawals dropped back down to just under uh, the pre-pandemic levels for withdrawals, and people kept saving. So I think, you know, this these programs work, and people have bought into it. Interesting. Um, in terms of those withdrawals, do you think how how do they compare relative to the private sector, similar to the you know the opting out analysis? Yeah, it's it's a little tough to compare because. You know, we often think IRAs versus qualified plans, obviously. Well, and Roth IRAs, where you can withdraw your contributions without penalty or tax implications. 401ks, it's more of the hardships and the plan loans. Although I will say, based just on my own experience when I was in industry and and you see some of the numbers out there at the macro level, when plan loans are available, people take advantage of plan loans um, and they usually take the maximum amount. So it's, it's, especially when you're talking uh, people of low to moderate. Uh, wages. So it's not that dissimilar from the private sector experience I, either. I, I wonder if people are appreciating the five-year holding period though, when, when they're... Probably not. Yeah, that would be a concern. So, so that's an opportunity for education, I think, yeah. for a lot of folks. I agree. Go ahead. But, I, wonder, I, I wonder if the states are, are, are doing folks a little bit of a disservice in terms of having access to that, those accounts before that five-year period expires? Well, I, I think this is an opportunity for the states in general, not just on that issue, but a host of issues around education. And this is where I think financial education could be helpful. I mentioned the issue of you get a statement in January, you see how much you've saved. That's the first time you maybe you've looked at it. Right. That's an opportunity for financial education because you just see a number, you're like, oh, I could really pay off my credit card or do whatever. Um, so I think there are a number of opportunities where the states could take advantage of these touch points they have, or someone wants withdrawal, you could have them talk to someone in the call center and say, do you understand what the implications of this are? So 
I think that's probably the next iteration of these state programs is one of financial education and, and boosting literacy. Interesting. So, you know, a lot of folks, when this, when these proposals first came out, um, you know, way back in the day, um, you know, Oregon first, California, Illinois, um, I think there's 13 states now with laws enacted. 15. 15 states with laws enacted. Um, I could run through the list. Oregon, California, Nevada, Colorado, Minnesota, Illinois, Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, New Jersey, Connecticut, New York, and Maine. And Vermont. And Vermont. How could I forget? How could you forget? Vermont, uh, which just just passed. Um, and, and, and the concern at the, at the origin date, you know, around the time when these ideas were first being discussed, there's a lot of financial services industry concern around how states would be displacing the financial services industry, it would take over the retirement plan business. Um, uh, you know, for those of you who don't know, ARA's view has always been that, you know, the coverage gap has been a systemic problem, and this is just going to increase the size of of the the pie, if you will, and and create opportunities as opposed to takeaway opportunities. What what is the data shown in that regard? Yeah, let me. And you're, you're probably going to hate me for this, but but I'm going to just talk about a, a Pew survey we did in 2016, real quick, because that was the genesis for this work. We did a survey of small to mid sized business owners, both with plans and without plans, and we talked a lot about why'd you offer a plan? What are the barriers to offering a plan, et cetera, et cetera. But we knew these state programs were on the horizon. And so we said, what would you do if your state adopted one of these um, automated savings programs like a Cal Savers? And for those without plans, 53% said they would adopt their own retirement plan rather than enrolling their workers uh, into the state program, which we thought was really interesting. That's probably the yeah. single most surprising finding out of that huge survey. And so when we started getting some 5,500 data, the form 5,500s that are filed by employers, which are publicly available and can be disaggregated at the state level, we thought, okay, you know, survey talk is cheap. Let's see what the actual evidence is for plan adoption in these states. And so for the past three years, we've been looking at uh, plan return data, comparing the states that have auto IRA programs versus those that don't. And functionally, that means comparing California, Oregon, and Illinois right. in terms of their new plan adoption versus the other states. Um, and by and, the way, th just to interject here, the other states we mentioned have enacted the law, but they haven't adopted the program. Have, the program hasn't been launched yet. So the only ones with exactly. programs in place are, as, as John was mentioning, Oregon, Illinois and California. Yeah. And, and there's some data lag issues with the 5,500. So, you know, so we, we're going to catch up eventually with some of these other states, but those are three states for which we've had data um, from the Department of Labor. And so what we've seen, you know, when you have that first year that the program goes live, we see this uptick in new plan adoption by employers in those auto IRA states that are, that are higher than the national average. And and I think what's, and I think probably what your listeners want to hear is why that's the case. And again, it goes back to this survey we did before because we understood from that prior survey in 2016, retirement benefits aren't the first benefit that's offered by an employer. It's typically health insurance. Right. 
they usually do it a few years into their life cycle, um, sometimes as a competitive pressure or demand from employees. But uh, usually it takes a bit more for an employer to adopt a plan. So what you have then is a bit of a push-pull effect. The state comes in, says you need to enroll your workers into this statewide program or adopt your own program. So the state is acting to nudge employers to make a decision. And then at the same time, you have the pull factor where you have companies that are offering 401k plans saying, wouldn't you rather have a 401k with employer matching and a bigger selection of investments and and other features? So that's what I think is happening in both the data as well as anecdotal information from some of those service providers saying, heck yeah, we are marketing pretty hard in California and Oregon and Illinois. I think, um, and I think there's been, you know, rel- relative to states without the auto IRA, something like 30% more in- higher increase in in new plan formation. Is that something, is that a relatively accurate number? Yeah, I think so. It's, uh, we would express it a little bit differently, but I was looking at the, uh, the Oregon numbers um, just before this uh, podcast taping and so before Oregon Saves went live, they were averaging roughly around 600 new plans a year. After it went live, it, it jumped up to 900 plans a year. That's about a 50% increase. Yeah. And so, but, but state experience will vary. Um, sure. and, and, and it depends also on the rollout. So California has had kind of a long rollout. Right. Last year, they had a massive um, enrollment of smaller employers. Right. So we would expect the 2022 plan data to show a big increase in new plans in California. That makes that makes a lot of sense, and and frankly, that's what we've heard from you know advisors and providers in those states is just the demand for for uh, an alternative uh, for those who are looking for you know it, it's sort of like the idea of having a plan is something that a small business owner thinks about from time to time. But, you know, he or she eventually, you know, they get distracted. and Oh, of course. They've got a lot going on. This is sort of forcing the question to be answered one way or the other. And and I think it's important for your listeners to understand, too, is that an employer might not be ready for a 401k plan. They might enroll their workers in CalSAVERS. But that doesn't mean you can't approach them in a year or two. They might be ready then for a 401k, you know, especially after their workers get some experience saving into an IRA and are more comfortable with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what's, so we've got all the states we mentioned. I know Pew is focused on, you know, we're not, you're not done yet. So what, where's the future? What are the states that uh, Pew particularly thinks uh, uh, there's an opportunity to expand uh, the auto IRA initiative uh, into? Well, I think there are several states, but um, I'll just mention Pennsylvania, uh, these are states with legislation or demonstrated interest. So Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Michigan, uh, Washington State. Um, I think there is an existing program in Virginia, but it's limited in terms of its scope. I would expect in a year or two, once they gain some experience with the program, that there might be an opportunity to expand that program to more employers. So there are a number of states around the country. And you know, frankly, there's some other interesting states, you know, like Arkansas and Oklahoma, where we've seen or, or heard of legislative interest. So it's really spread across the country, across regions, and, and becoming much more of a bipartisan issue. Yeah, I mean, you know, as you, you started with the point about the fact that, uh, you know, we both have worked very hard over the, you know, several decades, I hate to admit that, 
to keep uh, by you know keep retirement policy bipartisan. You know, for the most part, even at the federal level, that's uh, been the case. Uh, secure in the House, passed with over 400 votes. Um, you know, being able to to demonstrate that this is an effective way to to solve that coverage gap um, uh, on a bipartisan basis would would certainly be an extension of that. La- last question. One of the biggest concerns we have, others have around retirement policy, is the is is the is the racial savings gap um, that that currently exists, which is pretty dramatic in terms of the numbers. And you know, we believe a lot of that stems from the coverage gap problem because a lot of um, uh, black and Hispanic workers tend to work for smaller businesses that don't have a plan. Have you done any work or are you planning to do any work that will show that the state programs are starting to help address that uh, that racial inequity when it comes to retirement savings? Yeah, we have. I mentioned a couple of things I'll just mention. Um, one is I mentioned the Illinois survey of workers that are both participating and have opted out. We have shown we recently published a piece a week ago uh, where that these programs like Illinois Secure Choice disproportionately benefit Hispanics and African-Americans. And so we're starting to understand, you know, what's the the target client base for a lot of these programs, which makes sense. Yeah. Um, we are also conducting a survey of Black and Hispanic workers just around wealth building in general, um, trying to understand how people think about wealth, how what do they think are their pathways to building up assets and more financial security, and then how does retirement savings fit into that sort of strategy? And then, then I would say the last thing we're looking at is the savers match, the, the old uh, savers tax credit, which Secure 2.0 expanded into a, a matching contribution. We're trying to see how that might be applied to the state programs as well as other uh, vehicles, because I think that would affect um, a number of workers of color and help boost their account balances um, beyond just what they save uh, themselves. Yeah, I mean, for those who, whose employers can't afford a match, the government uh, will be getting in, I think it's 2027, Seven. Yes, which is a little ways away, but still in 2027, we'll be, get, we'll be able to be eligible for a matching contribution that is going to go from the Treasury Department into um, employees' savings accounts. Uh, let's not get into how that's going to happen because that'll probably be a, a whole other podcast. That'll but, be another podcast. Yeah. Uh, Less, I'm sure people are. You've mentioned a bunch of materials. Is there a website that folks can go to 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 find out more information? Yeah, I, I think we certainly do have a web page just for the project. Um, I probably the easiest thing to do is just go to or Google Pew Charitable Trust Retirement Savings, um, and it'll take you right to our. Sounds, sounds great, John. That was fantastic. Really appreciate your time and uh, very much appreciate all of your years of efforts to try to uh, expand our nation's retirement system. We share your belief that is an extremely important initiative. Brian, thank you. Thank you for having me. And I really repay, you know, uh, say the same. Thank you for all your hard work and the work of the ARA. We really value you as a partner on retirement security in general. And so thank you for having me today. 